open to Psalm 98 if you haven't already there. It's only a very short psalm, nine verses, and we will read it. So we call this the Joy to the World Psalm, Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous songs and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Father, I pray that tonight we would learn more about you, about Jesus, and about the Holy Spirit. We sing the song, Joy to the World, and we should not just sing it at Christmas, but we should sing it throughout the year, every day, because you've done marvelous things, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all of us here tonight. May we leave here tonight knowing more of you. In Jesus' name, amen. This type of psalm, I always tell you, is called a enthronement psalm, or some would call it a theocratic psalm. When you read Psalms 93 to 100 next time, you'll notice that they all deal with the king, ultimately the king of kings, Jesus Christ, in the millennial kingdom. But sometimes these were read at coronations for Israel's kings, so they're called the enthronement psalms. And enthronement psalms ultimately describe God's sovereign rule. As you notice, there is no author for this psalm, like last week when we read Psalm 91. So it's another one of the 50 what we call orphan psalms. And you notice it does have an inscription. It just says a psalm right above it there. That's the only one of the 150 that just says a psalm. Uh, Hymns that have come from Psalm 98, other than joy to the world, come let us sing unto the Lord and new songs of celebration. The main idea of this psalm is that God's people should be singing new songs that attest to his continuing wonderful works on their behalf and that anticipate the greatest saving act that will take place when he comes to make all things right. Praise is all about God, who he is, what he has done. True worship is theocentric, God-centered. It was Thomas Watson, that great Puritan, that said, Praising God is one of the highest and purest acts of religion. In prayer, we act like men. In praise, we act like angels. We have three simple outlines tonight. Praising God our Savior, verse 1 to 3, paragraph 1. Praising God our King, paragraph 2, verses 4 to 6. And praising God our Judge, verses 7 to 9. And each one of those has a subpoint: how God is to be praised and why he is to be praised. So let's begin with praising God our Savior. The second stanza of Joy to the World says, Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Israel was to praise the Lord because he was their Savior. How God's to be praised? Well, first off, it says, it begins, Oh, sing to the Lord. Psalms is 150 hymns. 
in five hymn books combined into one. And last week we said it took 900 years to make them. We do not have the music today, but we have the words in Hebrew that we have today. At least 49 of those psalms directly say, sing to the Lord or sing out loud to the Lord. In this psalm, it says the word sing five times and singing once, which is more than any other psalm. And that's probably why Isaac Watts chose this psalm to make joy to the world. There's a history of singing in the Old Testament. In Job 38, 7, it says the angels sang at creation. It says, when the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy, Job 38, 7. In Exodus 15, 1, which may be the first poetry in the Old Testament, it says that Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. And then when God gave the Israelites water, the Israelites sang in numbers, spring up, O well, sing to it. And then in the book of Judges, Deborah and Barak sang, then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinom, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the peoples offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord. I will sing, I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. That was after uh, Deborah and Barak defeated Caesarea. And then when David returned from war, it says that as they were coming home, David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. David his ten thousands. It was David who organized the, the worship in the temple, at what would be the tabernacle and then the temple, in 1 Chronicles 16, he would organize singing in the morning and singing in the night, and they would sing these 150 psalms. In the New Testament, we have a history of singing the night of the Passover. Jesus and the disciples would sing Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 when they did the Passover. In Acts 16.25, when Paul and Silas are in jail, they're singing, right? Ephesians 5.19 says that we are to dress one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. James 5.13 says, if anyone you is suffering... Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. In Revelation 14.3, the 144,000 will sing a new song. In Revelation 15.3, the saints who overcome the Antichrist are going to sing the song of Moses. So we have singing all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, and the Israelites were quite familiar with it. But not only does it say in the first line of verse 1 to sing Sing, it says, sing a new song. And what this term means is generally after a military victory, they would sing a new song. We don't know what military victory Psalm 98 would have been about. Uh, we can't speculate. But it, it means that, you know, when, the, when we already mentioned the song of deliverance that Moses and the children of Israel were saying, 
after they crossed the Red Sea, and we mentioned Deborah and Barak saying, so many times after military victory after military victory, they would sing a new song. They'd write a new song. Psalms 33.3 says, sing to him a new song. Psalms 43 says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Psalms 96.1 says, sing to the Lord a new song. Psalms 98.1, we read, says, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. Psalms 144.9 says, I will sing a new song to thee, O God. Psalms 149.1 says, sing to the Lord a new song. Lloyd Ogilvy says, no wonder old songs sometimes are no longer appropriate. Such new intervention by Yahweh demands new music and new worship. This outbreak of joy must find its own form. When God answers our prayers, we should be singing new songs of praise to him. So that's how he's to be praised, with song and a new song, why he is to be praised. Well, Israel, who wrote this psalm, was to be praised God for the marvelous things he's done. It says in the last part of 1b, for he has done marvelous things. Maybe your translation in NSB says wonderful things. This is a key word in the Old Testament. What marvelous things means? Miracles. When God does miracles, it denotes God's direct supernatural intervention in the life of his people. The first time we have this word, it's in Exodus 3.19, and God is speaking, and he says, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Psalms 9.1 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Psalm 40, verse 5 says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds. Then Psalms 96.3, another theocratic psalm says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among his people. I mentioned we don't know the military battle, we don't know the setting, but it's probably after Israel was delivered by a miraculous victory. He did marvelous things for Israel, and he's done marvelous things for you and me. The second thing, he says, he has worked salvation. It says he his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. And then verse 3 said, at the end of that says, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So right there in a couple of verses, you have the word salvation three times. But first off, let's talk about his right hand. When you see his right hand and holy arm in the Old Testament, it's an anthropomorphic tom, you know, uh, Drew mentioned on Sunday that God, you know, doesn't have eyes. Well, God doesn't have a hand either. It's an anthropomorphic term, but it signifies the power of God who personally delivered Israel from their slavery and captivity. It means there is no other person, no other power on earth that could deliver only the Almighty God. As I mentioned last week, salvation in the Old Testament means deliverance. That's why we believe it's a military battle this psalm was about. This salvation was a mighty act of God, whereby God delivered Israel from a danger, an affliction, a death, or a battlefield in the time of war. We read last week in Psalms 91, and it was probably the battle when God, the angel of the Lord, killed the 185,000 Assyrians. Psalms 91.7 says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes 
and see the recompense of the wicked. Time and time again, God gave Israel the victory, and all Israel had to do was just trust the Lord. But battle after battle, victory after victory, they would break out in joyous songs. Notice it also says there that, that the Lord has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. He not only worked salvation, he made it known in the nations. This reminds me in Joshua 2, when the spies went to spy out the land, and the two spies went to Jericho, and Rahab talks to them and says, I know the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away. Rahab, the people of Jericho, and all those cities in Canaan had heard about what happened at the Red Sea, had heard about the ten plagues in Egypt. Then it says he has remembered love and faithfulness. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Here you have two powerful attributes of God that he promised to be with Israel. And they were that his loving kindness, maybe your translation says, or my translation says steadfast love. And the Psalms many times will use these two words together. Psalms 89.1 says, I will sing of his loving kindness of Yahweh forever. From generation to generation, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. Psalms 59.17 says, O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. God remembered his steadfast love to Israel, and that's what this first paragraph is. This first paragraph, verses 1 to 3, is kind of about the past in Israel. And when it says it remembers that God acted on behalf of his children Israel, probably a military victory. Well, how does that apply to us today when we're talking about Israel in the past? The psalmist sang because of God's great salvation from enemies, but we're New Testament Christians, and we sing because of God's great salvation from the penalty of sin. When we're saved, we learn how to worship God in many ways, and one of those ways is by singing praises, singing hymns, singing choruses. Not just on Sunday, five songs on Sunday, but throughout the week, throughout the year. It's why we were created, to give praise to God. It's what we're going to be doing in eternity forever. It's uh, to give praise to the sovereign king. You know, um, the first song we sang tonight was real quiet, right? Because we didn't know it real well. Then we sang Psalm 130 and got a little louder, right? Then we sang Psalm 130 and you finally broke and got a little louder. But uh, we need to be singing throughout the week, in our cars, at home, like today when you hear good news. Because God has delivered us three things he's delivered us from. Like the Israels were delivered from a military battle, God delivered us from sin, number one. God delivered us from sin's penalty when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin. God delivered us, the Holy Spirit, frankly, delivered us from sin's power. And then when we get to heaven, we're going to be delivered from sin's presence. So we're delivered from sin, number one. Number two, we're delivered from death. Death has no hold on us when you have Jesus Christ in your heart. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, away from the body, present with the Lord. So he delivered us from sin. He delivered us from death. He also delivers us from Satan. In James 4, 7, it says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Last week, I said Jesus loved the Psalms. This week, I want to tell you who else loved the Psalm, Mary. Uh, you know that the Catholics love that word called the Magnificent, right? 
the Magnificent, and it's found in Luke 46, Luke 1, verse 46 to 54. I think Mary knew Psalms 98. The Jews knew scripture like you would not believe. Because in Psalms 98, it says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Then Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord in the Magnificent. Psalm 98 says, For he has done marvelous things. Mary says in verse 49 of Luke 1, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Psalms 98 says, His right hand and holy arm have worked salvation for him. Mary says in Luke 1:51 in the Magnificent, He has shown strength with his arm. Psalms 98 verse 2 says, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. And Mary would say in Luke 1.50 in the Magnificent, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Psalms 98 would say in verse 3, He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And Mary would say, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mary in the Magnificent, I believe, is praising God from Psalm 98 that she had memorized. So that's joy to the world because God is our Savior. Let's look at paragraph 2, praising God our King. The first stanza of joy to the world, it says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. It's really not talking about Luke 2. We've kind of made it about Luke 2 and the shepherds when we sing joy to the world. But it's about the second coming as paragraph 2, praising God our King, and then praising God our Judge in Psalms 98 are about the second coming of Jesus Christ, not the first. But we have made Joy to the World a Christmas song about the first coming. The first paragraph in Psalms calls Israel to praise him for his marvelous works. This second paragraph here calls everyone in the world to praise and worship him as the king. How he is to be praised? Well, the second stanza, we worship God as king, and that's why it's included in the Royal Psalms, Psalm 93 to 100. But first off, with shouts of joy. I wanted to shout out this morning when I got that uh, text message that we've been praying because you hear good news. The ESV says, make a joyful noise. Many translations simply just say, shout to the Lord, shout for joy. The worship now goes to all the earth, not just the nation of Israel. God wants worship from all nations throughout the world and all peoples. And this, this, this noise or this worship is to be joyful and loud. In Ezra 3, when they rebuilt the temple, it said the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and that sound was heard far away. Psalms 132.16 says, Her priests I will close with salvation, and her holy ones will sing loudly for joy. Psalms 27, 6 says, And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifice with loud shouts of joy, and I will sing praises to Yahweh. Psalm 71, 23 says, My lips will shout for joy. I will sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. You know, we just finished five services on Sunday with one service, right? And one thing I loved about the service wasn't the food necessarily afterwards. It was good, great. Thank you to all those who made it. One thing wasn't to be able to meet people you don't know and have sweet fellowship. One of the things I loved was the singing because you all sang a lot louder than you normally do in the single service. 
when we have an auditorium that can seat 700 people and you've got 150 people in the first service and maybe 180 and you're all spread out, you don't sing very loud. Okay? I spent 18 years overseas. They sing loud. They make loud noises in India. They make loud noises in Myanmar and, and Thailand. But maybe because we have just a few people, maybe because you're shy and you don't want anybody to hear you, we don't sing very loud. You know, when I, I got scarred in, I got an F in first grade in music. Teachers were, and I think that scarred me for life. And then in junior choir, I had to lip sync. That's how bad I'm a singer. So some of you make a joyful noise to the Lord. Then there are people like me who make a noiseful joy to the Lord. So maybe you're in my category. But we need to sing louder. Last March, the staff of Christ Community Church got to go to the Shepherds Conference up at Grace Community Church. And I guess, you know, it's only men. And in the auditorium, there are 3,500 men. And then they've got another 1,500 and another two auditoriums. But when you're in the main auditorium with 3,500 men, and they start off by singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That's from Psalms 46. The hair on your head practically stands up. It is incredible. And then they'll sing, you know, How, How Great is Our Lord, the songs they sing. The music is incredible when it's sung loud. John Wesley was a Methodist. And apparently the Methodists, I didn't know this, they're known for their hearty singing. And John Wesley said, Beware of singing as if you were half dead or asleep. Some of us do that when we come on Sunday. But lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the songs of Satan. Okay? We used to sing those songs. Maybe you didn't, but, you know, uh, Journey, The Beatles, Led Zeppelin. We used to sing those songs enthusiastically, right? Maybe you still do. Well, does your worship consist of five songs on Sunday? If we do five songs, is that it? We need to sing all the time. Uh, we sang two songs on Sunday from Sovereign Grace Music. I think we did, Tim, right? Psalms 90 and Psalms 145. And there are some great music out there now from the Psalms. So Sovereign Grace Music has an album out called Unchanging God, Songs from the Book of Psalms. Volume 1, and I just bought Volume 2 today. It's not quite done. I pre-ordered it. But that's Psalm 145 that we sing, How Great. It's just an incredible song, and we sang Psalm Everlasting from Psalm 90. There's a lot of great worship songs out there from the Psalms, and it's getting more and more with, uh, with uh, composers. So we're to, sing, uh, we're to sing songs, and we're also to sing joyous songs. He says, break forth in joyous songs and sing praises. We don't just shout joyfully. We're to break out in joyous songs. Remember when Moses and the people of Israel, when they, when they came in Exodus 15, that's a song, a poetry of deliverance. I mentioned Deborah and Barak. That's a song in Judges 5. Hannah, when she found out she was going to have a baby, she sang a new song. Mary in Luke 1, we said the Magnificent. That's a song. Uh, these people, Moses, Deborah, Hannah, Mary, they broke forth in exuberant outbursts that no one can suppress. You know, too often we sing very quietly because we don't want the person next to us to hear us. Too often we're sad or we just, you know, our lips don't hardly move. But, you know, in the book of Revelation, the word loud is found 21 times. You better get used to it. 
Because in Revelation, if you're going, and I hope you're going, it's going to be really loud, okay? Worship is going to be loud and joyful when we get to heaven. So let's start on it here. So thirdly, we do it with musical instruments. It says, sing praises to the Lord with a lyre. With the lyre, a lyre is a harp, a type of harp. With the lyre and a sound of melody. And then it says, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. When I first went to India back in 2001, uh, my, the pastor from another part of India had not shown up. So I'm, Sunday I'm going to churches, and they're not, they're not in English. We had to start an English church. But I bumped into a church that had no musical instruments, no piano, no guitar. I didn't know what was going on until I found out later they don't believe in using music. And I think the Church of Christ here in America, uh, some of their denominations don't also. Trying to talk to those people was a waste of time. But I, I could, you couldn't argue with them. But I, I, Genesis 4, verse 21 says that uh, Cain's brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the par- pipe. So they had musical instruments in Genesis 4. And I already mentioned all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, and late as Revelation 15, 2, we're going to be singing with harps. So there's musical instruments all through the Old Testament, New Testament. So you couldn't argue with those people. They don't know. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says that uh, the flute and the lyre were well known in early church services. And the word in Greek for psalms literally means that singing a song to the accompaniment of a stringed instrument. All these psalms, and many of the psalms in the heading have a word for a musical instrument. Psalm 71, 22 says, I will praise you with the harp, even your truth, O God. To you I will sing praises with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. Psalms 144, 9 says, O God, I will sing a new song to you. With a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. The very last psalm, Psalm 150, you can turn there maybe. We might look at it someday, but I'll just read it tonight. Psalms 150, the book of Psalms finishes. It says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with the loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Psalms 150 lists eight musical instruments and says praise 13 times. So why is he be praised? Two things. He is king and he is Lord. It says in verse 6, make a joyful noise before the king. You know, we just celebrated July 4th, didn't we? Or I slept through it. I didn't hear a single firecracker all night, but... But I'm not sure we Americans understand the monarchy, understand kings. Maybe some of you came from Europe or something. But, uh, you know, some of your emphasis on your ancestors got rid of King George many years ago. My ancestors were loyal to King George, and they had to flee to Canada. That's why my dad was from Canada. But some of your ancestors got rid of King George and the monarchy, and I don't think we Americans really know the monarchy. I didn't until I went to Thailand. And they had a very popular king who ruled for over 60-something years. Everywhere is his picture. Everywhere. You go to a movie, you got to stand for the king's anthem. There are posters everywhere. There are songs about him. 
He is literally considered a god almost, and he can do no wrong. And if you say anything about this king in your social media posts, there are over 200 people checking. They will arrest you and throw you in jail for a minimum of 10 years. There are people in America who have said things in Facebook bad about the king in Thailand, went back to visit a relative, and are currently in jail. So, you know, we don't realize that, but uh, the king is to be worshipped. Uh, and Jesus Christ is that king we're talking about, not the king of Thailand. When Jesus went to Nathaniel in John 1:49, Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What does the king do? Well, Jesus said in Luke 4:43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what the king came to do, to preach the good news. And unfortunately, most of the nation of Israel rejected him. And Jesus told the disciples in, 11, in Luke 11, 2, And when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We are to look forward to the coming of the king, Jesus Christ. But Pilate and the, Jew, Pilate and the Jews did not believe that king. Pilate said, Are you a king to Jesus? And Jesus said, You have said it so. And so when Pilate presented Jesus to the Jews before the crucifixion, he said, Behold your king. You can just see the sarcasm in there. And then when they nailed Jesus Christ to the cross, they put a sign up there that said, This is the king of the Jews, mocking him, right? Turn with me to Psalms 2, verse 6. We, we turn to this psalm many times in our Sunday services. Lance has gone to it many times because it's the, the greatest messianic psalm in the book of Psalms, and it's quoted in the, the New Testament many, many times, probably the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's all about the king. But when you go to verse 6, it says, As for me, Yahweh is talking. God the Father is talking. And what does he say? I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God, Yahweh, is saying, I have set my king, and that king is Jesus Christ. So he came the first time, but Psalms 98 and joy to the world is really about that king that's coming a second time. And we need to worship him as a king, because he is, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's going to be the ruler of all the kings of the earth. The second word is, it just says, the Lord. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. The last line in verse 6 gives us the main reason to praise the Lord. Because his name is King Yahweh. You notice that we have Yahweh or Lord in this psalm six times in the nine verses. Yahweh is the most common name of God in the Bible. Jews will not even say it. They have that tetragram they have. But it's listed 6,519 times. I'm enjoying the LSB translation because they've translated Lord to Yahweh in the Old Testament. And I like to say it, even if Jews don't like to say it. The first time Yahweh is used is in Genesis 2, 4. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Israel would reject his king when the Messiah came the first time. And today our world doesn't want the king of kings. But we eagerly look for that great day when the king comes. The king is coming. Turn with me to Revelation 1. Revelation 1 begin, begins with a, a beautiful introduction that talks about this king and his coming kingship. 
Revelation 1, verse 4 says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We have a king that we need to sing praises to, and we're a kingdom of priests. First Peter 2.9, we won't turn there, also says that we are a kingdom of priests. The king is coming, and that's why we sing joy to the world, because Jesus is our savior and Jesus is our king. Let's go to number the third paragraph. Praising God, our judge. The fourth stanza of Joy to the World, third or fourth, I can't, sometimes they're switched, says, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nation prove. That's talking about the coming judge. He's coming to judge the world, and that's why we sing that in Joy to the World. And you can see why this favorite Christmas song is really about the second coming when he comes the second time when he's going to judge the world. Point one of our paragraph was about Israel, was to praise the Lord. That was the past. Point two, the whole earth is to praise the Lord in the present. But here, this point three, the psalmist calls on all creation to praise the Lord, and that will be in the future when the judge comes. How is he to be praised? Well, creation praises him. This beautiful poetic language in verse seven to nine, he says, by the sea, by the world. Many commentators believe that when he says world there, he's talking about animals and plants. By the rivers, and many commentators would say when, when rivers hit each other, it's like the clapping of hands, and by the mountains. You remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem? He rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, and the, the children and the people were singing and shouting so loud, and the Pharisees said, shut those kids up. What did Jesus say? He said, I tell you, if these, these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Creation cries out. Psalm 65 is a wonderful psalm about creation. And it ends with saying that the meadows will close themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with rain. They shout and sing together with joy. All through the psalms, we don't have time to go through them all. It talks about creation uh, uh, personifying nature. And Paul would take upon this in Romans chapter 8, where Paul would say that, I consider that, our, verse 18 in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope, that creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. And you can go on and read up to page 25. It's talking about creation is looking for the redemption of Israel. Creation is going to cry out like it here it is in our Psalms. Paul is saying that the whole world is groaning from the sin stain that it has. The whole world in creation is waiting for redemption. You know, our world today is screaming louder and louder every day, about climate control. The world is deifying nature. It's, it, it's worshiping the earth. They cry about saving the whales, saving spotted owls. 
but they don't care about the babies, do they? But you're going to see more and more of this world worship in time to come. We've got to finish quickly. Why is to be praised? Three things. He is the judge of the earth. He judges in righteousness, and he judges in equity. God is coming. Jesus Christ, the Savior, and the King is coming to judge the earth, and he's going to make all things right. First off, he comes as the judge of the earth. It says he comes forth to judge the earth. The New Testament, Paul would pick up on this. He says in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom, then Paul would say the judge is coming, preach the word, preach the word. So the judge is coming, and we have the responsibility as the kingdom of priests to preach the world and tell people that judgment is coming. We tell them that they're sinners. We tell them they're separated from God. We also need to tell them that judgment is coming. He judges in righteousness. It says he will judge the world in righteousness. And Paul would say in Acts 17, 30, 30 to 31, Times of ignorance of God is overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that's Jesus Christ. And this judge, Jesus Christ when he comes, is going to judge according to divine law, not according to a constitution, not according to laws that uh, faulty legislatures make. There will be no corruption. There will be no bribes to judges. There will be no hung juries. There will be no lenient district attorneys. All the guilty will be judged and sentenced to hell. If you have Jesus Christ in your heart today, you're not guilty. You're justified, and you'll be in heaven. Psalm 77, 17 says, I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness, and I will sing praises to the name of Yahweh most high. And thirdly, he judges in equity. Equity just means fairness. All the peoples of the world will be judged in equity. No one will be able to say God is unfair. Colossians 3.25 says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. That word, there is no partiality with God, is mentioned many times. We sing joy to the world because Jesus Christ is our Savior. We sing joy to the world because Jesus Christ is our King. We sing joy to the world because Jesus is our judge. Is he your savior? Is he your king? Is he your judge? Let me just read the Psalms 98 verses 4 to 6 again. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth in joyous songs and praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. You know, it's almost a, a cliche to tell Christians to pray more and to praise more. Last week, we looked at Psalm 91, and we asked you to pray more. There's an urgent time. We are at war, and we need to pray more. Tonight, we're telling you to praise God more. I hope your worship, your praise, is not just the five songs on Sunday, but it's throughout the week. There is so much beautiful worship music out there. I hope you'll leave here tonight singing praises for who he is, the Savior, the king, and the judge. And what do you praise him for? The marvelous works he's done. You ought to praise him every day for salvation, that Jesus Christ paid my price for my sin on the cross, not only for me, but for my family, for my friends. We can 
praise him for the marvelous works he's done in our nation, how he's used our nation, how he answered prayers today for baby Ava. So not just five songs on Sunday, but your whole day, your whole life. I'll close tonight with one psalm from Psalm 104.33 that says, I will sing to Yahweh throughout my life. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Let's pray. pray. Father in heaven, may we leave here today praising you for the marvelous works you did for the nation of Israel. And may we meditate and contemplate on the marvelous works that you've done in each and every one of our lives, our family's life, at Christ Community Church in the nation of America. Father, you have done marvelous works. You have done miracles after miracles. And those are perfect works. You said you remembered. That was, means action. You put it into action, these marvelous works. May we leave here tonight and be people of prayer and praise at Christ Community Church. In Jesus' name, amen.